This is the Interview Art Podcast. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and today I'm joined by a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. His name is Dylan Shaw. He's a developer evangelist. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the Interview Art Podcast, brother. It's a dream to be on the Interview Art Podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, you flatter me too much. This definitely <laughs> definitely shouldn't be a dream. Um, like we got we got a dream higher, brother. But listen, here we are, and we got um, GDC that just 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 went by. And there's a lot to cover. I think one of the things that stood out for me from GDC, and I want to get your opinion on, is um, the, Vi- the price of the Vive Pro caused a lot of sort of ruckus. And yeah. I want to know what you think, you know, what, what, what that situation looks like from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So um, from, from a marketing standpoint, if you look at his direct competitor, the Oculus Go, um, you're going to get a, a 199 device. So I think um, before I go into this, uh, I, like I, I actually didn't get a chance to see the Vive Pro on the showroom floor, and I haven't had the experience itself yet. So for a solid foundation, do you want to just tell us what the value proposition is? Yeah, so basically at this point, the Vive Pro comes with integrated audio, and it has a 78% higher resolution screen than the, than the regular Vive. The regular Vive got dropped. By the way, the price of the Vive Pro is at $800. Just the headset, no lighthouses, no controllers included. And then um, the price of the Vive, on the other hand, got dropped down to $499, which is, which is a welcome sign. But, you know, the, but, but people seem to be focused more on the price of the Vive Pro and, the, and that simple fact that you know, to add the lighthouses and to add the controllers would be another like $300 on top of you know, uh, $800 headset, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I actually, sorry for the confusion there. I, I uh, said the Oculus Go is a direct competitor, but I was thinking some uh, more about the Vive Focus. Mm. Uh, so what you said about the Vive Pro, in fact, what I think is interesting about this this particular headset is the way that it does tracking, especially for some of its room scale. Um, because it's got two cameras on the front, I've assumed kind of a lot about the way it tracks. So I haven't abandoned the idea that eventually um, that device could be a space for new uh, software development and firmware for allowing for a common uh, mixed reality experience and better utilization of inside-out tracking uh, as, well as, as well as the lighthouse tracking. So I think, I think the product itself, uh, being that I haven't tried it yet, is greatly improved from an ergonomic standpoint and also from, obviously, you mentioned the resolution. So I think it's just a solid chance to sort of tap into more higher-end productions. So maybe businesses with uh, higher budgets that have more B2B productions that they're looking to implement. Um, like an example might be sort of an extension of a workplace or industrial applications where um, people are using VR for you know a SolidWorks type um, or a Rhino type uh, application. Yeah, I think you know, and, and definitely I see the professional space being able to utilize it really, really well. But you know, I think a lot of the, I think the hive mind was kind of upset with the fact that you know it doesn't help mainstream adoption to release a headset like this, um, and then mark and then the marketing of the headset itself 
doesn't seem to really indicate that it's made for professionals from the get-go. And 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 I don't know. I think I think you know this is something that I've been struggling with because people have come up to me and asked me like, "Hey, man, you know, is VR dead? <laughs> is VR is is what's oh, gonna, yeah. what's it going to take for VR to mainstream or like you know what is is VR fad?" And so. When I see things like this, the HCC pulling off something like this, it just doesn't seem to to me like they are really uh, in it to get get mainstream adoption, or 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 maybe they they just they're they're playing some 4D chess that I don't see. Yeah, I, I think we never really know where the big big next thing is going to come from. So this might be a way for that to happen. Um, sort of, you know, for the lowest friction. Uh, you know, I think the HTC Vive experience uh, on a normal headset, not the Pro, will will get you sort of the content that you need and and enable you to sort of see the the, the value proposition of VR. And I was just having, so I, I just don't. I think we're in a disillusioned stage because as both both of us are scholars of VR, um, you know, we tend to we tend to be in circles where, as you say, the hive mind is is very loudly heard. And what I like to just remind people is that. So many people in America have yet to see VR, and that's really sort of why I'm a developer evangelist and not just a developer, um, because I, I, I just believe strongly, and I know you do too, with the, um, the Metaverse meetup. You've done your level best to just introduce new people to uh, the understanding of VR, and I think that enabling adoption is still sort of grassroots, but um, you know, I, I'll reserve judgment on the Vive Pro because... As I say, you know, the experience is ultimately a better one in the Vive Pro uh, due to the enabling of a higher pixel density and um, some better ergonomic qualities. But uh, yeah, I just don't see I just don't see it as a huge step up in terms of like the co- content creation it might enable. Yeah, no, it's true, and I think uh, you know we're seeing. Um, at least from my standpoint, I see uh, Vive and HTC opening themselves up for more competition, um, and which is good. I think Samsung and the Samsung Odyssey, I haven't tried it yet, but I know that on paper the specs are really good. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing about the Windows Mixed Reality heads is that on, uh, across the board, I keep hearing everyone sort of talk about is the fact that the tracking isn't as good as the Vive or the Oculus because as soon as you, as soon as the inside-out cameras lose sight of the, your controllers, you know, let's say you put your hands behind your back, um, yeah. I hear that you lose a little bit of tracking. And so, you know, $500 Samsung Odyssey versus a, a, a $800 plus Vive Pro, you know, same resolution. Who who would you choose if you if you had to choose one? So the question was. The the mixed reality headsets versus versus what mixed well the Samsung Odyssey because at this point um, the Samsung Odyssey and the Vive Pro have the highest resolutions of all the headsets at this point. Got it. Um, and so I wonder, like, if you know, if 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 you are a developer or you know, depending on your use case, you know, which one is better on um, for you? Would you choose the Samsung Odyssey? Or would you choose the Vive Pro? It's a tough question, so I'll preface it with I haven't tried the Samsung Odyssey myself yet, nor the nor the Vive Pro um, at this point. So really, my answer is going to be driven by software. So when I think about um, the Samsung Odyssey, it's going to have the Windows Cliff House. Um, so baked into that, I think you're going to see, if I had to pontificate, uh, the, the Windows operating system become more tightly integrated in terms of features and, and file access from the Windows Cliff House space. And what it is already is pretty modular. So like a persistent workspace for you is going to be created in that Cliff House. And it's already social, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on what you need from the device, uh, you know, you might be focused around that Windows Cliff House uh, launch space initially. Uh, but then on the flip side, you have the Steam VR Home or now the new Viveport uh, Redux. So... I think these sort of ubiquitous thing we're seeing for both hardware, um, assuming that both are similarly um, similarly specced on the hardware side, is is a combination of features where um, you can currently sort of inhabit a launch space that allows virtual spaces to become a unique combination of features 
that enable productivity. So I think that, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite, but um, what, what, what it's going to come down to is what you need out of the content side. And um, I think if you're a Windows user, distinguishing the Samsung Odyssey from the HTC Vive Pro is, is probably, um, probably going to be that Windows Clubhouse application. Yeah, no, it's definitely going to be a, a tough choice, and it definitely is going to be dependent on what your use case is for it. And, and going back to an early conversation we were just having, um, when people if when people come up to you or or in your um, in your talks with people, do you ever do, do people ever ask you the question, you know, what is it going to take for VR to go mainstream? Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what do you think? What, what, what will it take for VR to go mainstream? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question um, and one that I probably will fumble around with, so forgive me. But it, it takes developers. It takes, you know, it takes more than gaming, in my opinion. Um, and it and it absolutely, my like, my overall thought is that it's not just a price thing. It's, it's many things that need to step in the right direction. And, like, for instance, one of the things that I think will be most compelling in VR and AR particularly and I'll back into sort of my gestalt view is using using your voice um, with to interact with applications because the possibilities are endless. You know, like I might be flying a plane to defend a city, and I you know can use my voice to to tell like you know my colleagues or or co players to do something else. Um, I might be uh, training to do surgery in VR and be t- talking directly to you know. Uh, some like some assistant to to uh, hand me a you know a, de- a med device, um, or I might not even have a med assist- assistant. I could be talking to an AI um, and getting that sort of that that game object to move uh, to me uh, after it sort of processed my language. So I think um, in closing, I think what I want to what I want to say is that it seems like we're stepping in the right direction with these all in one headsets this year. Um, but right now, I'm just not seeing, from a developer standpoint, uh, an equal impetus on developing experiencing experiences outside of the domain of entertainment and social. Um, and and my qualitative assessment on that is just that those two categories have a lot of potential when it comes to breakout success. When you define success as uh, number of users or number of downloads. But I think that the next big thing is is potentially going to come from distribution, and so web VR has to go hand in hand with distribution. Uh, right now, you know, we have the store platforms in Steam, Oculus, Viveport, um, Oculus Home, rather. And so I, I would point out that you know it'd be much easier for us to move seamlessly from experience to experience if we had sort of the network backend um, that you were starting to see in applications like. Super Medium, which is uh, founded by a couple of guys out of Mozilla um, and are currently in Y Combinator's Winter 18 batch. So uh, I think, you know, there's no full answer, but assembling assembling content that w- ranges, ranges um, vastly from, from just entertainment and social to, you know, books that are visualized or... Um, you know, new medical applications or maybe data visualizations like inter- industry vertical applications um, is really going to be like an enabler for why VR can be transformative. Um, but then again, I'll loop back around to the, the point I made earlier about how most people still in America haven't really seen VR. So um, not, not all is lost. And I think, um, you know, some of the push with the all-in-one headsets will will be a necessary step with a 199 entrance point price point yeah definitely um god you took me on a wild ride right there uh but let me no, go back no. to something you said about place with that sorry, sorry sorry say that again i said i flew all over the place with that no i like it i like it i took notes and i'm gonna go one by one um so one thing that you mentioned earlier uh was that using voice in vr is important and i 100 mm-hmm. percent agree I wonder if you think that um, the unity with IBM IBM Watson partnership would be able would enable developers to perhaps 
um, use some of the language, language, uh, natural language processing capabilities that IBM Watson has and incorporate them into their VR experiences. I know this is a really early, you know, partnership. I think it's just going to, I got announced last month or something like that. But, um, but we all saw it coming. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, it, it was met through that, that announcement was, was made through the use of hackathons and like a variety of other very publicly held, um, testing resources, uh, for IBM to pioneer that that API, so um, they used to call it Bluemix, right? So, um, yeah. So I think uh, absolutely, you know, that that's a great enablement or enabler to uh, democratize the use of NLP um, and sort of speech rec, um, because the the fact is, you know, studying up about waveforms and actually how to how to do this signal processing yourself um, when you already have uh, all of the app development and networking development to do for your own applications sometimes would be far too dense to do on your own. Um, or sometimes you don't have the resources to bring on someone with that, that skill set. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it comes down to also flexible networks and how speech is handled. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how uh, processing of speech is done. Is it done on the edge device or is it done on network and, um, I definitely think that IBM Watson's speech rack will be used by a lot of developers. Yeah, you know, I'm extremely excited to um, of the to know or to recognize the possibility that you know they might include it in their games, and you might be able to have more substant substantial interactions with AI and video games and virtual reality experiences. I think. You know, the more intelligent AI we include inside of these VR environments, the more we get closer to crossing the uncanny valley on another front. You know, like it's not just about the uncanny valley doesn't get just crossed by, I think, by just resolution. Um, You have to include a whole variety of other factors to really, really lose that sense of disbelief um, for the user. Um, So, yeah, I want to know the other thing that I wanted to ask you was, Going back to the earlier point you made about you know how the majority of people don't know about VR, do you think the movie Ready Player One might be a, a sort of like a watershed moment, or are you think are you you know caught are you are you a little weary, or how do you feel about Ready Player One um, in terms of it, it, its impact on trying to see the, the you know the the mass consciousness with what what VR has to offer? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think. Um... I think that the, the power of pop culture is that it can sort of tap into collective imagination. Um, you see, you see a lot of people sort of, um, you know, a, better able to conceptualize and think about future technologies or potential futures after you know, like really, really popular pop, uh, pop culture flicks come out, right? So it was that way with sort of. Um, you know, aspects of uh, Back to the Future, um, you know, with like a like a Nike self-lacing shoe. And it, I mean, I think we've seen examples of um, the acceleration of the hive mind in thinking about how something could be um, when drawn in by the imagination of like a prolific creator who uses film as, as their medium. And that's exactly what Spielberg is going to, I hope, deliver with um, Ready Player One. I think I should probably reread the book um, I read it while I was in college and, um, you know, I, I hope that it, it doesn't leave people with an impression that, um, you know, while technology is going to, uh, for, for virtual reality or digital reality is going to, uh, evolve massively, that it's going to have this trade off like it does in the fictional world of ready, ready player one, where, you know, our, our protagonist is basically living inside of, um, I think is it like a, it's like a mobile mobile van, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the book, um, because basically that's like the best place for him to go for solace. So, and like sort of it's it's sort of like you know you, you can see that there are trade offs in in the book that like while technology has evolved and matured to a point of like real digital reality um, use cases and and just like immersion, um, like the the world itself has become more complex with issues like pertaining to infrastructure and, you know, I think that that might be like a dark shadow that could be cast by the, by the movie. Um, and also like we'll throw in like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people in my, um, my Twitter feed as well. Um, 
talked about Black Mirror, which is, an, if you're not familiar, Black Mirror is an anthology about, you know, future technology. Amazing show. Amazing show, and has the power to deliver uh, with crazy graphics and large complexity. So um, it's it's definitely worth watching. But a lot of people paid attention to how negative um, some of the some of the episodes are, and um, you know, a lot of people also want positivity. And so, I'm, long story short, uh, I, I just hope that it's well received, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing it myself next Wednesday. Yeah, you know, I'm very curious, now that you mentioned it, I am really curious to know and to see what their interpretation, what Steven Spielberg's interpretation of the metaverse is. You know, yeah. what, 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 is it, what does it look like? How do people interact? What, is, what are the, you know, fundamental things that make it a metaverse? Um, I'm really curious to know. And, and you know, it's in that same vein, in your mind, what is your favorite vision of what the metaverse should be? Have you encountered someone's vision, or uh, do you have a, a, a particular vision of what the metaverse should be? Um, that's a that's a tough question, uh, but a good question. And you know, I think um, you know there's there's such. So you, you alluded to this earlier where it was like sort of there's so many things that need to come along, come together in order to um, really suspend disbelief and deliver on presence um, and move closer to um, providing the critical connection to the virtual, the virtual space that we look for in a metaverse um, and how it's always been written about in science fiction. So I'd expect, you know, to see... Uh, Obviously, devices need to deliver on digital reality expectations. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think that areas like tactile haptics and um, sort of also audio need to become much more substantial in addition to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, display technologies that consume so much attention um, from us as an, as an important aspect of, as an important aspect of, of the technology side. I think uh, from a creative standpoint, um, a metaverse should should become more and more like a natural interface. Um, so I, I think right now I don't have the greatest quantitative assessments on distinguishing what a natural interface is from, uh, you know, your keyboard and mouse. But I think it's, it's, it's basically, um, we talked a little bit about this while I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's essentially moving us back towards uh, having like uh, a little bit more of a movement uh, base interaction with things. So, you know, maybe more standing, more walking around. Um, and from a, yeah, from, from that, I'll stop there because I also want to hear your point of view and maybe we can sort of pontificate together. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I think, it's 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 a tough sort of question because you know from uh, I, I'm really tempted to use my experiences in VR chat to, to to as a as a way as a blueprint for what's to come in the future. Interesting. You know, I, I, I I I'm really tempted to, um, but the problem with my experiences in VR chat is that I don't really go in VR chat that much to go explore different rooms and stuff you know at first it was all about that i was all about going out and exploring and just seeing the madness that is out there right but yeah. but now you know i found a place in vr chat where i just go dance <laughs> and so and so and so and so i just go dance at club void you know like every other night and i'm like making all these friends without saying a single word it's hilarious and you know that's an aspect of the metaverse that you know because it's so small right now vr chat it's like it, it's it's hard for me to like really extrapolate what it's going to look like once bec it becomes all mainstream i think um and so and so my thinking is that if there is going to be a metaverse can there be one at all without a monetary system you know could you have could could you have something that is cohesive that people keep coming back to without having some, like, trade, the, you know, the, being able to trade value with each other inside this space. Um, and in VR chat, you, you kind of, and in other social worlds, you kind of see that um, in, the, in the way that people wear avatars that are really cool and awesome, and they get, uh, 
props and kudos and attention and that's sort of like you know people are trading attention in that way in sort of de facto way but you know there is no yet like a all-encompassing monetary system for you know these social worlds in the moment there is one i think that's when it's really i hope that that's when it's really going to take off because people will have and a real incentive like to go in there and make something for themselves and make a, hopefully even make a living. I think the uh, partnership between Janus VR and High Fidelity that got uh, announced, I think, last night was really interesting because now they're both uh, sort of collaborating on a single on a singular blockchain coin. Um, yeah. And that's super dope. That's really cool. Um, so, so I wonder, you know, what do you think about, you know, on that sort of rant about whether a metaverse needs a monetary system or can it be a metaverse without, uh, sort of, am I being too capitalistic here? <laughs> um, and, and, and be inboxing myself in with, with what the metaverse should be. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, so I, I, don't, I, I honestly don't know what the next, the next thing will be to make uh, the metaverse more interesting. But certainly, uh, from a tactics standpoint, um, you know it's it's beneficial to everybody who's a member, right, um, to have the possibility to to transact and make money. I was never really engaged with Second Life, um, but I did see, uh, you know, that you know, from a peripheral standpoint, from a layperson standpoint, that a payment system also gave um, a lot of its longevity, uh, a lot of sec- second life's longevity to it. So I think there's, um, there's some validity to what you're saying. Uh, I just, I think, so I, I heard Philip speak about this, uh, Philip Rosedale speak about, um, monetary policy. Uh, and he, he also said that, um, second life made more, more money at, at roughly the same people, uh, or the same rate that people came online. So one of the things that they're going to, uh, definitely try doing is making uh, a more stable issuance of currency. So as people come online, uh, that way that way transaction uh, transactions will happen. Uh, versus sort of when your supply is limited, um, it turns into more of a store of value. Um, but it needs to be easy to use. And some some of the things that fascinate me about this sort of thing in VR is that. You can sort of just point at somebody and and you know have the option to pay. Uh, all of the UX around paying somebody can be rethought and reimagined. Um, and so I, I've like definitely I've got things on my mind that I could wax about um, in terms of what is a compelling uh, way to to pay in the world and and also like what is the role of of um, not diegetic but yeah so, so just diegetic. ATM sort of uh, systems inside of the world. What's a diegetic uh, ATM system, sir? Di- diegetic meaning in the world versus oh. like inside of your own, uh, like on your screen, right? So uh, non non diegetic would be like stuck to the headset or like you know only you can see it perhaps. Uh, but diegetic meaning, yeah, like a compelling thing might be like at one point I saw Philip posted like a picture of. A high fidelity users like waiting in line to get currency from a bank, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not I'm not sure if we're going to need sort of that infrastructure. I think it was more like he couldn't resist having like a joke about uh, being able to take you know your currency from an actual institution in VR. So I um, I think he mentioned also that sort of contracts will will play a role in terms of being a compelling way to pay from one person to another uh, for an object that's created. So say with basically with any big shift in technology, what often comes as compelling, uh, what often is as compelling are things that are currently done in the world. So um, anywhere where payment is issued sort of once X is met, right? Some X condition is met might be very important in virtual spaces. You know, you brought up a point that's really interesting to me. Um, the idea that, well, the fact that Philip Rosa uh, you, uh, made his users, uh, for high fidelity users, made the high fidelity users stand in line to get virtual coins, to get uh, high fidelity coin, or I can't, yeah. forget, I can't remember the name of the coin, but, um, but it's yeah, HFC. HFC. So, so they, so they waited in line, and so my my thinking is, is he onto something here, wherein 
you know, in order to provide an intuitive experience to people, we have to sort of replicate or semi-replicate the experience of the real world. So in order to, you know, facilitate the ability for people to do banking in the metaverse or in VR, you have to make them stand in line. <laughs> because otherwise, yeah. to try to come up with a UI that is all-encompassing would be too too much, too complicated for for the masses. And so yeah. in that same vein, would it, would it also be that, well, the next you know, experience for the DMV, you actually literally have to stand in line in VR. <laughs> the next experience to go to speak to, like, I don't know, like whatever experience, you know, where you want to, like, you, let's say you want to order food. Now there's a food ordering app in, in VR. And now you have to, like, literally stand in line and, and, and waiting for a counter to open up for you to order. Um, and then, and so that's weird. <laughs> but but I wonder yeah. if you think that he's onto something here. Yeah, I think um, so. That's like the new skeuomorphic design, right? Like with the with the iPhone, you you saw that like the note the Notepad app had like the sort of the 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 well known sort of yellow pad yeah. with lines, and sort of like you know iBooks has like a book logo on it. So that that's sort of like referencing knowledge in the head. There's this great book called The Design of Everyday Things uh, that talks about knowledge in the world and knowledge in the head and. And so, um, you know, this is something I've seen across the board with people who I think really have been students of the design of VR um, in the last two years. Like, for instance, um, Isabel uh, from Oculus spoke yesterday at GDC, um, something about um, maximizing retention in VR. And some of, the, some of the UX things that she really wanted to point out to the audience were uh, how... In first contact, if you're familiar with or you're not familiar with this, this is sort of the first experience that you see when you put the headset on for Oculus uh, Rift um, to get set up. And it sort of teaches you how to use the controllers and so forth. But uh, what's significant about that demo is the way that the robot waves at you uh, in the very beginning of the experience because it's like a universal sign. So cross language, um, you know, the knowledge in the head is when you receive a wave, you, re- you return it, right? You reciprocate. So um, acknowledging that there are ways that we can gently nudge users to do do things by leveraging um, you know real knowledge in the head uh, with our U- our UX for VR design. But at some point, uh, too, I'm sure that uh, new sort of first class methods of doing this that are natively built for for VR will come to come to be the case because sometimes. You know, knowledge in the head is established on constraints of the real world. And then suddenly you're given, you know, this blank canvas to come up with a novel design for something. And perhaps it can enable us to uh, see a better way of doing things. Yeah, definitely. And moving uh, or changing gears a little bit, I want to ask you about um, what do you think is the biggest threat to VR at this point? And and now uh, you know, not the big, maybe not the biggest threat in terms of like oh it's gonna shut down the whole industry, but more like it's gonna you know bring things down to a plateau where it'll remain really niche forever. Like you know, one thing that I know for sure is that VR is here to stay. You know, but the scale of it, the how big it's gonna get, I think is dependent on a lot of variables. And I wonder, you know, what you think those variables are and what the biggest threat is. That's a great question. Um, you know, and I should be asked that question or should be asking myself that question a lot more often. Um, I suffer from like massive overconfidence bias um, as I patiently wait for, for VR to sort of continue to evolve um, because I do believe that it's really, it's really stimulating and, and fascinating to myself. And so I suffer from a lot of the same biases you do. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, could stop it you know, from growing massively is sort of new, uh, new actual feasibility trials or studies that come from actual quantitative assessment, uh, distinguishing uh, the healthiness of VR systems for humans. Um, so like as they currently are, you know, so like, let's say our eyes are, like, you know, contain millions of light sensitive cells called rod, rods, and con- rods and cones, right? Rod, rods enables enables us to see, or rods enable us to see light and motion, and code, cones enable us to see color. Right. So, let's just say hypothetically that you know they just disc- like research is published that 
you know, VR uh, as it currently is being distributed is like, you know, somehow destroying light sensitive cells in, in the eyes. That's something that could have a lasting uh, dampening effect on adoption. Um, and I also share, you know, I, sh- I like to share with people that one of the things I like about VR is when I'm working um, on something in VR, whether it's like sort of talking to someone in VR, I can be like sort of walking around and, and be a little bit more active than sitting in a chair. And sometimes that's necessary. So there's also the flip side that I'm, I often over overly um, focus on or overfit on, which is that you know it could be a modality that's even more healthy than sitting at a desk and being on a computer. But um, that's the only point that I would really call out uh, that's been uh, on my mind lately. So just just that example of like you know is it a is it creating a, a healthy environment for us from a from a, a health standpoint. Yeah. yeah and, it, and there's two angles on that. You know, there's a psychological angle and then there's the physical, the, you know, bi- like biophysical, uh, the, the physical angle, like, you know, your eyes and, and, you know, talking to what you said or speaking about what you said about, you know, hurting the eyes. I, based on my experience going a hundred hours wearing the VR headset, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I can, um, uh, I'm a witness. I'm a, I'm a, I have a first-hand account into what happens when you wear the headset for way too long. And what happens yeah. is you, you, bring, you burn the screen door effect into your retina. And, and you see this, the, that 90-degree field of view uh, uh, inside the headset. You see a, you know, when you take out the headset, you see a screen door effect in it, that covers that 90-degree field of view. And so when I, would look at, uh, when I would look at my peripheries, that's the screen door effect would, would, was, was gone. It was like a, it was like a transparent mesh that I saw for like three days that was, that was sort of like just, you know, burned into my vision. And, you know, after the second day, I was like, oh, my God, I fucked up. God damn it. What was I thinking going 100 hours? What the fuck? This is what I do for science. But thankfully, yeah. it went away after the first, uh, after the first three days. Um, so it's definitely, I think you can definitely, definitely give your, get, have, you know, VR can have an effect, especially if you do some insane extreme things like I did. But I don't know if, but but we'll see. I think you think you, I think it's definitely something that's worth watching. I don't think I'm personally uh, am biased, <laughs> so I, I personally don't think that VR hurts the eyes uh, in moderation. Um, and the other thing is the psychological aspect is you know what is it doing to uh, our ability to be social animals or be just you know productive people like. Yeah, absolutely. Is is are my interactions v are my interactions VR chat more fake? Are they not real? Are they not? Are they are are, are they less human because I'm wearing a headset and this, and these people might be who knows where and around the world? It's 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 weird. And, and actually, I would counter the to the opposite. I would say that I'm having immensely human interactions inside of VR chat, like dancing with people and then and then hugging people in VR. It's it's like your brain receives the same dose of dopamine. It's 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 this proprioceptive sort of uh, this effect happens, and and you get dopamine in your brain when you're doing you know social fun things in in, in VR chat, like you know playing around with glow sticks and and and, and what else you know uh, taking selfies with shot glasses in VR chat. Like that's crazy. It's it's hilarious because you're a Pikachu. Pikachus don't drink. Whiskey. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, to also continue the conversation, like just identifying um, use cases where people are going into VR and leaving VR with some benefit in the real world for having been in VR is also critical. Like, obviously, um, VR chat has its place and, and social definitely has its place. Um, in, in so, insofar as you just mentioned, right, like it has this sort of neurochemical effect on, on you and it, it's definitely an important thing, social connectedness. But I also think, you know, science education in VR or s- applications like CalcFlow that are reskinning how we learn, uh, you know, linear algebra, for instance, right, um, are important to the health of VR. And because when you leave VR, you want to have uh, as an as an experienced developer or somebody who's developed a space for someone to come into, you want to have that person leave feeling like they spent their time in a 
in a valuable way, I think. So um, another thing that I think could, you know, potentially dampen adoption of VR or keep it stalled is if none of those sort of uh, educators or folks interested in productivity or health benefits from like sort of meditation in VR uh, sort of catch on um, or have any sort of real feasibility, um, scientific feasibility done um, to, to actually be able to make claims. Um, I think that also is going to be important. I think, I think meditation, if you just look at some of like the actual uh, steam spy data for VR is surprisingly popular. And one, one aspect I wanted to ask you about, about VR is, um, do you think it will develop into this extremely st- stimulating space where you're constantly being bombarded with um, information, notifications, or maybe like people people coming up to you and asking you things or talking to you? Or will it be this thing where in certain spaces you're allowed to like channel your your visual um, sense and all and your auditory sense and actually have a space to deeply focus and uh, experience like sort of you know, a really productive environment. I think it's going to be a combination of both, Uh, you know, and I think that's, and this is where, um, you know, there's a chance for the free market to really do, do good work here because, you know, you could monetize on providing people a, a space where they can feel productive and reach that flow state easily and mm-hmm. really just, you know, have, have their own environment. Like, you know, like you, um, uh, your virtual reality, you know, VR desktop, kind of like a VR desktop, but, you know, at a, at a more advanced rate, you know, who, who knows what it'll look like 10 years from now, right? The, yeah. and, and then you have where, you know, the bombardment that sort of emulates our so current state of social media, <laughs> where you're just constantly being bombarded by all, all this information. And this is the weird thing about it, you know, like, I go to VR nowadays to escape social media, <laughs> to get yeah. away from that, to feel more human. You know, I like I mentioned earlier, like when you hug someone in VR chat, like it's so much better than getting a retweet or a like or anything of that sort. It's even it's, a high five in VR. It's, yeah, it's even a high five or a fist bump. It's it's exponentially yeah. better, uh, more human than a like or a retweet or whatever. And so, uh, and so, uh, part of me says. I hope it doesn't happen that way. I hope we don't go that the route where like VR becomes sort of uh, a place where you know all you do is fight for is fight to hold on to your attention span because basically this is what what we're in right now. This is the current state we're in. We're fighting every day to control our attention spans, um, and so I hope that doesn't go that route. Um, but I but I but knowing the world the way it is. It's probably going to get both, you know, and, and, and thankfully, you know, people will have a choice because I, 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 at the same time, I also realize that there's people who enjoy that sort of level of activeness and, you know, social media sort of engagement. Um, so, so good for them. And, and I think the, the future metaverse will have a little bit of everything for everyone. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, this is a good transition point. It's one of the best talks that I saw at GDC. Um, which was given by Noah Falstein. Uh, Noah Falstein's sort of one of the more high-profile high game developers um, at GDC usually. And, um, you know, he's transitioned or has been interested since 1991 in doing games for health. Um, and so once you start, have you, after you've been in VR for a while, you sort of get, get the perspective that um, games actually will probably produce some of the best technical architects for VR systems in the future just because, uh, from my perspective, um, you know, when you're designing for VR, a lot of the technology uh, under the hood uh, has a very similar effect to uh, those technologies uh, developed with the desire to produce wicked games, right? So that's not news to you, but of course... Um, when I when I was educated at the University of Southern California, I did an advanced games project and focused on, more on VR. Uh, but because I'm sort of from the medical field as a software engineer, um, I actually think it's really an exciting prospect to develop VR and AR applications for patients, caregivers, and, and other ecosystem partners in that in that medical space. Um, so Noah's talk was about FDA clearance for games, and and to your point about ADHD or rather 
um, fighting for our attention. Um, he mentioned uh, Pair Therapeutics among, among a couple of other companies, which are actually looking to get uh, games through FDA clearance as a, as a medical device to help treat um, ADHD-type symptoms in, in addition to or in substitution for uh, drugs like Ritalin and so forth. And so I think that's another area to watch. The space of uh, games is a prescription digital therapeutic. Um, and sort of like seeing where VR fits into that picture is going to be an ongoing area of my attention. Uh, oh, yeah. and, I, and it's a good topic to discuss with you since you're, you know, formerly a vivid, vivid vision. So Yeah, and I'm definitely fascinated with VR's ability to rewire the brain. Um, on so many levels, there's so much potential here, and it's exciting to see it. You know, I think that the application for the ADHD, that sounds amazing. You know, uh, why, why pump people up on amphetamines um, where you can provide them a virtual reality experience? Um, if, 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 you're di- if you're provided the proper care and, you know, you're directed by a doctor, of course. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think we're barely scratching the surface at the capabilities of this medium to really rewire the brain on both a behavioral and more uh, a more structural level, I think. Um, and I think the research will start coming out more and more and more as, as time goes on. You know, we're still at barely, you know, seeing the tip of the icebergs. We're taking baby steps, but I think it's only going to be a matter of time before yeah. like VR treatments are standard everywhere. Yeah, for instance, like Alkali um, Interactive Labs already has its late stage trial results from December of 2017 for its uh, pediatric ADHD uh, application, and the the actual results were very positive. Um, but the only and the only side effects actually were headache and a frustration and like symptoms of frustration, uh, which is much better than alternatives like Ritalin. So uh, they're currently seeking de novo clearance and. Uh, I think there's also um, multi-year studies published in Nature about aging aging adults and research with with games as well. So um, more on more on neuroplasticity and its and its uh, correlation with use of VR uh, in future in future podcasts for me um, definitely. No, that's for sure. And I think, you know, we're going to be seeing. Uh, we're definitely going to. I'm definitely excited to have you more on the show. Um, and I think. We're going to be seeing in the future, you know, studies are going to come out that are going to show that VR is effective in so many things. And then and then what I'm really interested in is once those studies pass, what's going to happen later when we start really iterating on the virtual environments themselves and the experience themselves, like, you know, one one VR comparing one VR experience versus the other, like one was was one experience more effective because they showed more trees was more experience more effective because they had a certain kind of music playing? Was one more experience more effective because they triggered a sort of action that other experience didn't? And so it, when you, when it get, when it'll, when it'll get down to that minutia to that nuanced level, I'm really excited to see what really makes the brain tick. Or maybe we'll find out that everyone's really 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 different, and you know, there's no there won't be a one straight up formula. But either way, that's it's going to be really interesting to find out. Yeah, this notion you're bringing up of comparative studies really helps um, bring clarity to another aspect of the FDA clearance process that I found uh, really daunting when I was sort of listening to Noah speak. Um, When you create a company and rigorously study a product that you're trying to bring to the market um, as a prescription digital therapeutic, as they say, um, one of the things that can stall your company is that you can you can basically not change your game because any significant changes to the game mechanics will invalidate your studies because your studies are based on the substrate that was submitted, right? Mm -hmm. So, So future sort of benefits are probably going to be coming from when there's more saturation of successful prescription digital therapeutic games in the in the market that can then be compared to one another and enable us to see differences um as granular as as you said with um the example of like game objects in, in a scene versus um you know other essential aspects of games yeah for sure so dylan i think we're gonna start bringing things down so close i'm gonna ask you the last couple questions if that's okay 
and I'm going to sure. leave it with the la these two questions. Um, number one is, what is the current state of the virtual reality industry? And number two, um, what are your biggest hopes for VR? Yeah, so um, the current state of the virtual reality industry is that recent unveilings uh, from major players in the cloud industry uh, have indicated that there's going to be a future to look forward to where edge devices um, are, are much more empowered because of computing via the cloud. So currently, I think uh, you're starting to see sort of a second wave of young startup companies in the VR space. Uh, ones I mentioned, mentioned earlier include Supermedium, which are creating a natively spatial UI for the, the browser. Um, and so what I hope to see is as we move towards this year of all-in-one devices, um, again, uh, you know, a, a new fold of, of excited people uh, that feel like, you know, it's less expensive to get involved and removing the need for a computer will, uh, will help um, boon, boon interest in, in virtual reality. Um, that's the current state. Um, and my, one of my hopes is that uh, basically solving late, latency and data problems. So instead of having to pull down DLC content from, you know, a store um, that we're, we're eventually able to within the, within the blink of an eye sort of navigate to a, an experience and have it be a functional, attractive experience, one that we're familiar and used to on a Rift or an HTC Vive. Um, and really, I think that's about server-side computing power and the ability to run computational intensive apps, like I mentioned, voice technologies included um, within within VR applications. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of big hopes for the future, and um, I appreciate you having me on the show. Man, it was awesome. I conclusively concluded that you, sir, are a scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. How can people stay in touch and follow up with all the things you're doing these days? I will, I will. Um, uh, sorry, how can people? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on all your usual, usual places. I tend to, tend to share, like, snippets of what I'm developing on Twitter and LinkedIn. So uh, reach out to me, Dylan Shaw. Dylan's D-I-L-A-N underscore S-H-A-H on Twitter. Sweet. I will include those uh, links in the show notes. Once again, Dylan, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to the next time we do this thing. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Chris, as always.